Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. Written about correctly, the work of putting together a home, you know, the cooking, the cleaning, the administrative stuff, can be romantic. You know, It's hard work, but it's beautiful work. And today, we've got two books honoring that work. In a bit, we'll hear from writer Crystal Wilkinson, who dug back into her deep family history, to write a cookbook that doubles as a memoir and describes the kitchen as a place of both toil and joy. But first, Helen Rebanks lives on a farm, and she has to do all the stuff that goes along with that. And her book, The Farmer's Wife, does contain recipes, but it's more of an ode to the work that goes into getting food on the table. And she tells Empress Scott Simon that being on the farm has made her acutely aware of how much food should cost. We get that and a surprise guest appearance from one of their part-time farmhands after the break. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Helen Rebank's memoir, The Farmer's Wife, begins with a young rooster's crow at 5.30 in the morning. Then follows Helen's day as she cooks, cleans, and cares for a family of six and six sheepdogs, two ponies, 25 chickens, 50 head of cattle, and 500 sheep. What follows is no less than life in full, births, family, mortality, zoning laws, paperwork, and recipes for food and for life. Along with her husband, James, who is also an author, Helen Rebanks runs the family farm in the English Lake District. She is the author now of The Farmer's Wife and joins us now from her family farm. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for inviting me onto the show. And also joining us, is Nick Offerman, the actor and comedian who is also a part-time shepherd and farmhand with the Rebanks. We'll get to that. Nick, thank you for being back with us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Helen Rebanks, how much of any given day do you feel tired? <laughs> oh, tired is a, <laughs> yes, it's a regular occurrence. Sometimes it's a competitive tiredness in our family. Do you feel women on the farm are often overlooked and the work they do? I think I'm finding that women that are doing roles that men have traditionally done are getting lots of media attention now, particularly in the UK. And that's all well and good. But what about the women that do the behind the scenes work that keeps these farms going? Uh, I'd like to ask you to read a section if you could. It's a, it's a section, um, your husband James suggests you drive up to the barn to see if a cow named Heidi has given birth. Heidi turns around to see what has just appeared out of her. She starts to lick the birth sack away from around the new calf's face and body and moves gently around it. We drive a little closer. The whole herd has noticed the new arrival. They're up and making their way over to sea. Dinky moves and calls to her own calf, and she gallops over to her. Kara and Eyebright are the most curious and maternal. They're due to calf soon. Heidi stands over her newborn, a proud mother, and all the aunties buzz around it as it tries to get to its feet. Wow, that's fast, I say, and James looks under its back end as closely as he dares. It looks like a bull calf from there. 
I can feel the relief in his body, relief that he hasn't needed to intervene. He's smiling. I put my arms around his waist and squeeze. Brilliant, I say. And he leans back to give me a kiss. He starts the engine and we head back to the house. There are lots of tough days on the farm when everything goes against you. But on a morning like this, there is nowhere else on earth I'd rather be. That is such a beautiful section. Oh, thank you. Let's get to Nick Offerman, who's been standing by. With tears in his eyes and a smile on his face. How did you enter the this world of the uh, of the Rebanks family farm? Well, it's interesting. I mean, in in brief, uh, through my love of the writing of Wendell Berry and other agrarian uh, writers, impossibly led me to discovering uh, Helen's husband James on Twitter of all places. And we, we became friends, uh, and I ended up going to visit them while I was shooting a TV show in Manchester. And, and you do actually work there, don't you, now and then? Yeah, I mean, yes, as uh, you know, that's my Disneyland. They, they make fun of me because instead of roller coasters, I, I like to help uh, sort out the sheep in the rain. And uh, for some reason, that's a good time to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Helen, were you, were you, God bless, were you ever tempted to tell Nick Offerman, hey, Mr. Hollywood, this is no place for amateurs? <laughs> oh, no, not at all. Um, Nick arrived a few years ago um, with a thick beard and a bald head, and he did look slightly unusual. But when we were all around the kitchen table and we shared food together, it just all fell into place. And he has a few cows here, he owns and just thoroughly enjoys company. Many recipes in this book. Cooking's important to you, isn't it? Oh, it certainly is. And I think that's how the book started. I wanted to tell stories around the food. Having meals around the family table is really important to me. We seem to have forgotten that real food comes from healthy soil. I I was struck by the fact that you said living on a farm has made you suspicious of cheap food. How, How so? If it's too cheap, then we're paying the price elsewhere. Because when we see how we grow food and the investment that it takes, if that isn't paid for properly, we're putting money into industrial food, aren't we? Nick Offerman, what do you absorb in your own life and learn from your time on the Rebanks farm? Digging in literally to to their way of life is is better than any spa I've ever been to because it, it involves all of the things you would think of as being reborative and healing. And then for Helen to then turn around and put out this book, which I just was so powerfully moved by because she gets into the the simplicity of what life is all about. And specifically regarding, you know, the people who, who produce our food, the people who take care of all of the systems by which our, our good food is delivered. I found that this is one of my favorite subject matters. If, if I were, if I had better manners, you could call me a gentleman farmer and I, I love to go <laughs> participate in the whole thing. When I'm spending time and communing with the rebanks, then that makes me aware. It redoubles my attention in the rest of my life. Where's this food coming from? No matter where I am in the world, who made this, And do they care about us and our health, or do they care more about their profits? Helen Rebanks, you know, I um, don't believe I have ever asked this question of a 
philosopher or a poet, but I'm going to try it on you. You see a lot of life on the farm. What's life all about? Life is about love. The whole book for me, creating this, has been about love. And we want our loved ones around us. We do little, simple things every day for each other. And the book very much is about all of those little things. And Nick, although you've touched on this a bit, what do you think you've uh, what do you think you've learned on that avenue of life by being with the Rebanks? When we do the good work right, that is us expressing our affection for one another and for Mother Nature's creation. When I read Helen's book, I was just astonished at at her clarity of of vision. She took what is pure and simple uh, about her life and wrote it almost like a beautiful novel. Um, yes, it's full of recipes, but the recipes are so poignantly placed that she'll tell an anecdote about maybe a, a childbirth of her own, and then she'll hit you with a shortbread recipe, <laughs> like a punch in the gut. <laughs> it should come with a slight warning that it might require tissues. Well, Helen Rebanks, a new memoir, The Farmer's Wife. She was joined by her farmhand, Nick Offerman. I want to thank you both very much for being with us. Oh, thank you. Thank you very kindly, Scott. I I remain a fan. This message is brought to you by Apple Pay. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the Wallet app and you're good to go. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. There's an interesting tension that comes up in this interview with Crystal Wilkinson. She is the writer of the book Praise Song for the Kitchen Ghosts, which is a cookbook and a memoir written as an appreciation to the women that came before her who worked to the bone in the kitchen. And Wilkinson says that as a feminist, she does believe that if women don't want to work in the kitchen preparing meals for the family, they shouldn't have to. But when her own daughters said as much, it elicited some complicated feelings there. Here's Wilkinson talking to here and now Celeste Headley. Crystal Wilkinson is a former Kentucky Poet Laureate. She teaches creative writing at the University of Kentucky. And she's been collecting and cooking recipes from five generations of her black Appalachian family for decades. So it's not surprising that her latest book is not just a treasure trove of recipes and history, but also a beautifully written memoir. Crystal Wilkinson's book is called Praise Song for the Kitchen Ghosts, and she joins me now. Welcome. Good to be here. I was so glad that you started the book the way you did, by acknowledging that when most people think of the Appalachians, they do not think of African Americans. But your family has lived in Casey County, Kentucky, since at least the early 1800s, right? Right. Can you tell us how your family ended up in Appalachia? How'd you get there? Through slavery, you know, I think quiet as it's kept, uh, most people think of those plantations in the South, the Deep South, as being the bastion of slavery. But there was also slavery in small towns and in mountains. And usually the enslaved people in those smaller, more rural places worked right next to the owner sometimes. Um, That's how my family got there. My fourth great-grandmother, Aggie, 
Aggie of color, was born in 1795 in Virginia and brought to Kentucky as Kentucky was being formed in early 1800s. One of the ways in which this book is such a gift is you have tracked the history of your family in a way that many African-Americans are not able to. I mean, it it is sometimes Mm -hmm. very difficult to get this kind of history here. How hard was it for you to track these things down? It was extremely difficult, and it was also very emotional for me. The reason why I can track my fourth great-grandmother is primarily because she was in a relationship, uh, a partnership, I guess we would call it a marriage now, although I don't think their union was legal, with a white man. So I was able to find records of him deeding her kitchen items, um, a feather bedstead, pots and pans and tables, and then she was known as Aggie of color. And so what was fascinating about it is that I could find her as long as she was with him. So he deeded her some land. He deeded her those household items. She's listed on some census records. But once he dies, she sort of disappears again. Yeah. And so it, it was difficult. But I also think that Grandma Aggie is sort of a stand-in for the thousands and thousands of Black women of her time who have not had a voice and all those thousands of people who can't put their finger on something exact the way that I was able to find those court documents and other documents that that say, you know, she was there. I almost start crying now when I I realize that I was able to put my finger even on the ink when I went to the courthouse. Yeah, it's such a gift. I mean, when I track back that far, once I get past a couple generations, there are no names. It's just in the records. It just says slave. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that's an incredible gift that you have given to your family. Um, Yeah, and that was one of the the daunting things. Like, you know, Aggie's daughter, and this is another way that I was able to find her, is that her daughter, Patsy Rife, was a well-known black businesswoman in her time. And in all of the history of my particular county in Kentucky, Patsy Rife is mentioned But it always says that her mother was a slave and her father was a wealthy white business owner. Mm -hmm. And so it was really um, a real emotional day when I was saying, oh, this slave, Patsy Rife's mother, was Aggie, Aggie Mm -hmm. of color, who became Aggie Wilkinson, who begat all of us. So, I mean, one of the things that I loved about the recipes is they're so pragmatic. <laughs> this this isn't precious cooking. That doesn't mean it's not good. It just means it's very forgiving. It feels to me like even somebody who, you know, doesn't cook all the time would probably be able to make most of these things. And I, I... It sounds from your writing like a lot of that came from the, the women in your family who were busy. Your grandmother, Christine, raised seven kids while working her own farm. She also worked as a domestic cooking for other people's families. And the recipe right. ended up being things that didn't you didn't need to stand over the, the stove the whole time. Right. You had had children to take care of. You had animals to take care of. And so being able to put something on the stove and walk away and leave it for a little while was important. And I think the other thing is that 
many of our culture's comfort foods come from survival foods. When you don't have much, you can get a little starch, a little broth, and what little meat you have, and put it together, and you have chicken and dumplings. (laughs) which is one of the recipes in the cookbook. There are some ingredients. I made eight or nine of the recipes out of the book. I got to say the blackberry lemonade was a massive hit, (laughs) Mm. as were the hoe cakes and the chili. Um, But for the hoe cakes, I had to get self-rising cornmeal, which I, I don't think I've ever used before. Yeah, that's what my grandmother always used. Like she thought that self-rising anything was like a miracle invention. (laughs) And she used self-rising flour and self-rising cornmeal. I mean, it makes sense. They they were working hard. Right. You know, the idea of life in Appalachia being hard scrabble, the idea that life for African-Americans is difficult. That's, I feel, a story most of us are used to. But your book also has so much joy. And you have this chapter that's called Birthdays Must Be Celebrated. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it feels to me as though people might be surprised by how much light and lightness and laughter there is included in your memories of growing up. How do you think that shaped not only you as a writer, but you as a cook? Even when you look at something as devastating as our legacy of slavery, you know, Aggie worked for people as an enslaved woman. My grandmother, Christine, worked for people as a domestic worker. And you had to find moments of joy. I mean, I think that cooking and providing Food for people was a form of love, and that was a joy. But I think for Black people, for Black women, the kitchen has always been a place of joy, even though it is a place of toil. It's where we got our hair done. It's where you heard the gossip. It's where music was played and you danced. The light always shone a particular way in my grandmother's kitchen. And so there was lots and lots of joy in the cooking of food. You also talk about passing on that kind of joy, that kind of tradition to your own kids. And I wonder how strong of an influence your children were to your decision to write this book. Obviously, you're sharing it with the wider public, which I'm grateful for. But what part did the thought of your children have in this? I hope they see this book as a gift There's so much about our history that they don't know. You know, there's a part of me as an educator, as an intellectual person, as a feminist who says, well, no, you don't have to cook if you don't want to. But when my daughters said that they didn't want to cook those large meals, I have to admit that even as a feminist, it kind of hurt my feelings. So I hope that they'll read this book and they'll have a, sort of a change of heart that they want to carry on some of these traditions. Then I think it's important for them to know about their Black Appalachian foodways. You know, like me, they sort of take that part of their history for granted. So I hope that they embrace all of these things that were and build a, a foundation for their own future with their children Um and I'll be there. You know, I envision myself already as the future kitchen ghost telling them not too much salt, you know, uh, a little bit more sage. The ways in which I feel like my grandmother and the other kitchen ghosts guide me. 
Krista Wilkinson's book is Praise Song for the Kitchen Ghosts, Stories and Recipes from Five Generations of Black Country Cooks. Krista Wilkinson, thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Emiko Tamagawa, Todd Munt, Karen Zamora, Catherine Fox, Rena Advani, Barry Gordimer, Melissa Gray, Gabe O'Connor, Deep Parvaz, and Ryan Bank. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. This is a message from This Is History with Dan Jones. Let renowned historian Dan Jones guide you through a landscape of rivalry, treachery, and murder, bringing to life the epic struggles of Henry and Edward. Listen to This Is History, Season 4, now on your favorite podcast platform. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR.